0: You're listening to WTF 2050. What's Tasmania's future? Future, future, future? 30 years goes like that. I wonder.
1: We've actually shown we can do these sorts of things. Without risk,
0: there is nothing.
2: Hello! Hello. I'm Leanne Minshull. And I'm Anna Bateman. And welcome to WTF 2050. Leanne, can you tell our listeners, what does WTF stand for?
0: Well, today it stands for What's Tasmania's Future 2050? And it's an initiative that we've come up with to talk to some of Tasmania's best thinkers around what they want Tasmania to look like in 2050. What's some big hairy goals? We want things that make people go, really? Could we do that by 2050? Because if it's not
2: ambitious, It's not worth talking about. Absolutely. And for our first show, we have independent economist Sol Eslake. Leanne, I've been a massive fan of Sol's for a long time um, because it seemed to me that he you know, was neither left nor right, just an incredibly sane independent economist. Um, When did you first meet him?
0: I met Sol 15 or 20 years ago when we were working on what you could describe as opposite sides of a forestry debate. Sol was uh, a banker. I was a forest activist, but we worked through that time. Quite collaboratively, and I'm really excited to now be working with him on something that's not grounded in division but rather grounded in vision. Here's a little taste.
1: What Tasmania can offer the rest of the world in terms of artistic and cultural experiences is also a fabulous economic opportunity, but it's also something I think that gives ordinary Tasmanians pride in themselves and their capabilities too. The amount of pride that people have in what David Walsh has done at Mona. But the way in which Mona has changed the cultural landscape here through the festivals that they've sponsored. This is an area that creates employment and is part of something that I think is increasingly giving pride to a broader proportion of Tasmania's community. It's part of what we say to the rest of the world as to who we are.
2: And more from Seoul shortly from a chat that we recorded behind a secret bookshelf. So Leanne, as it's our first show, we thought it would be good to give the listener a bit of background as to how this idea came about.
0: Yeah, well, the idea started like a lot of good ideas over too many beers and a curry at a friend's house. And the listeners are listening to you and me here. But we've also got Rod West, who's one of Tasmania's best known entrepreneurs, and Phil Pullinger, born and bred in the northwest of Tasmania, currently a GP in Hobart. And we'll hear a bit from them now.
1: Are the politicians really the leaders or are they the followers?
0: I think the political system set up to actually necessitate them being followers. So for a start it's adversarial, so you're always in there just thinking about when you can knock off your opponent. So that requires almost no creative collaboration. So how do you lead? I think it's really hard. I don't like taking pot shots at the political class because I think they're required in a democracy and it's a job I'd never want to do. But I think that the system sets up politicians to be... Uh, to make it very hard to lead or to create a new vision or to change the system. Also, just the nature of the terms locks in short-term, four-year cycle thinking.
2: Sort of 18 months to get something done and then you're into a re-election cycle
1: into anyway. It. Yeah, But even that's a question we need to ask. If we think forward 33 years to 2050, what type of government do we need? Is this the best system that we've got now?
2: That was Phil Pullinger, Rod West, me, Anna Bateman and... And Me, Leanne Minchel, which is a little rant that we recorded on how WTF 2050, what's Tazzy's future came about. So now it's on
0: to our 1st WTFer, Sol Eslake, who very kindly led us into his family home and especially into a small secret room behind a bookcase.
2: Yeah, that was a very special moment, wasn't it, the little bookshelf? So Sol's home was built in about 1820s. You'll hear him talking a little bit about his house and then we settle in to and get a bit of an economic history of Tasmania and also to work towards his goal for Tasmania in 2050. Who's come in. Hello. hello. Hi, Hello. Dogs, hello. Hello. Hello, Hello,
1: hello Anna. Hi. Lisa. Hi.
0: Hello. So the words, I don't really Oh,
1: my to God. Oh, it really is. How oh, did you
0: know, Anna? I had no idea. That's amazing. I feel like I'm in Harry Potter. Do you spend much time in
1: here? Um, Actually, Linda uses it more than it because I've got my office. Yeah. Linda uses it when she wants to get away from the kids. Yeah. Yeah, you know, this is just quiet. And this is cool. Apart from downstairs in the cellar, this is mm-hmm. the coolest room in the house when it's top.
2: Yeah. Oh, it's just beautiful. I'd come in here all the time if yeah. I lived here. Tell me how far we are from both the city of Hobart and the airport. And we're cows and horses and it's beautiful rolling hills.
1: I sometimes say to people from Melbourne or people who know Melbourne that we are in Hobart's equivalent of Sunbury in the sense that Sunbury is a small village-come-township that's near Melbourne Airport and a lot of people who work at the airport or for airlines live there. But while we are five minutes from the airport, Unlike Sunbury in Melbourne, we are 20 minutes tops from town, or less, depending on what time of the day you choose to go, and we're five minutes from a beach by car. You can walk to Seven Mile Beach in 35 minutes from here. You could cycle in about 15 minutes, as is so often the case with things in Tasmania. You are so much closer to things that you want to be close to. Well, this is 16 and a half acres of land, six and a bit hectares. Um, we could afford to buy that here. We could not have afforded to buy anything like that a similar distance or indeed even three times the distance from the centre of Melbourne where we would lived for 30 years you certainly couldn't do it in Sydney and we never contemplated doing it in Perth Adelaide or Brisbane but you couldn't afford to do it there either so it's the relative price of the land to begin with Um, but also given the type of house that this is you know originally built by convicts in the early part of the 19th century there are still the skills the craftsmanship people who are capable of doing what you see around here. So if you look closely, you can just see incredible pride in the work that's mm-hmm. been done, particularly by the stonemason, but also if you look closely by the carpenters and the people who did the woodwork and just the attention to detail that has gone into some of what you see around here is, is sort of incredible. And I suspect you'd struggle to find that at a price that we could have afforded uh, in any other part of the country. You know, I used to find when I lived in Melbourne for the best part of 30 years that I was much more reluctant to get out of the city into national parks or beaches or anything like that because you just have to drive through an hour and a half of traffic in each direction in order to get there and I couldn't be bothered. Whereas, you know, living here or in the far northwest of Tasmania, you can almost walk to it from your house in some ways. Uh, and I do that here every morning. You know, I sort of go up around the fringe of the bush or down near to Seven Mile Beach. I take the dogs for a walk on Seven Mile Beach every Saturday morning for an hour or so. You just couldn't do that sort of thing in Melbourne. Um While I was in Melbourne, I think I probably lost touch with some of that, and in the three years that I've been back, I'm sort of conscious that I'm much more aware of the changing of the seasons, much more aware of the plants that are growing in our garden that we've put here.
2: Are you very proud of being in Tasmania?
1: Oh yeah, yes I am. And I get particularly annoyed when We're kind of discarded and seen as not relevant. And to give you some examples of things that get on my goat in that regard is when journalists and others say that some other state has the highest, lowest, fastest, slowest, strongest, weakest of any mainland state. As if they're saying, well, we know actually Tasmania is the strongest, weakest, slowest, fastest, highest, lowest, something, but because you're an island, you don't count. You know, you don't hear anyone say if South Australia has the highest, lowest, whatever of something, that some other state is the highest, slowest of any state whose capital doesn't begin with a vowel. <laughs> and that's how stupid it is to exclude us in that way. In the same way, in my view, the fact that the AFL refuses to treat us as a state that doesn't allow us to have a team, but nonetheless calls itself a national competition is something I almost take personal offense at because in my view, we are a state. We have in AFL football over many years, punched above our weight. And yet the AFL seems to think our role in their competition is to send our best players to play for mainland clubs and then to pay taxpayers money to host games of no consequence between teams with no followers that would lose money if they were staged (laughs) at the major sporting stadiums in Melbourne. And, you know, that really gets on my goat. I get annoyed about that. It annoys me that Tasmania, for the first time since the late 1930s, has no representation in the federal ministry. You know, I think that is treating a foundation part of Australia with contempt. And I wish more Tasmanians would get angrier about that. But, you know, maybe part of the problem is we don't assert our identity as a state as strongly as we should on some occasions.
2: I think a lot of people on the mainland forget that Hobart was almost wealthier than Sydney for a time there when the colony started. Is that right?
1: There was a period in the 1820s and 1830s when Tasmania was, on average, about the same standard of living as New South Wales. Uh, Of course, at that time, there wasn't much... To the rest of Australia as far as European colonialists were concerned. Victoria wasn't started by uh, Europeans until Tasmanians invented it in 1835. Likewise, South Australia, I think, was 1836, and Perth was first settled in 1829, and Queensland in the early 1820s. So Van Diemen's Land, as it was then called, and New South Wales were about all there is, Tasmania... For
2: almost a generation?
1: Roughly speaking, yes. Uh, From the 1840s onwards, Tasmania experienced a significant recession. And then when gold was discovered in Victoria, Tasmania almost completely emptied out other than those associated with the convict system. And it probably wasn't until the 20th century that Tasmania really started to recover from that impact of the gold rushes in Victoria. And even then, in the early 1920s, there was an inquiry, one of, I think, four that occurred over the course of the 20th century, but the Lockyer Inquiry in the 1920s uh, documented how poor Tasmania had become relative to the rest of the country and proposed some potential solutions to that other inquiries have travelled over much the same ground without ever really changing very much ever since then.
0: So we're talking about 2050 Mm -hmm. in this series and thinking about some big hairy goals for Tasmania Mm -hmm. and then looking at the strengths that Tasmania already has and building on those. And I guess the same way that you said that you're more connected to nature when you grow up in Tasmania, I think communities are also more connected to each other just because of the size of the island and the size of the community.
1: Yeah I think that's right and it shows up even in statistics which given my training I tend to pay attention to but there are plenty of surveys that show not only that people in Tasmania feel safer in a personal sense but that they feel That they're more likely to have an influence not on national politics but on local affairs and on state Mm. politics. I mean, a surprisingly high proportion of Tasmanians actually know who their members of parliament are and have had some engagement, or they're
0: related to them. Yes, or they're related (laughs) to them,
1: I suppose. I mean, that's partly a product of the Hare Clark system, Mm. but it's also that you know, state government and local government are more accessible here than they are on the mainland and you know we have a lot of small towns and often not always but often they promote a a sense of community
0: i noted in your report our strong reliance on agriculture and Mm -hmm. we could grow that and i do note that a lot of people want to come to tasmania or want our products at a premium price because of our good water our good air our good soil Mm. So we're in 2050. What does the makeup of the economy look like? And then what are some of the advantages that we use to Hmm. get
1: there? I think I'd start by saying it looks very different from the economy we had in 1950 or 1980. And let me sort of set the scene for that by saying from about 1930 until maybe the mid-1980s, Tasmania's economy was built on the idea that we could produce undifferentiated commodities at relatively low prices and win market share on that. So beginning in the 1930s, we sought to combine cheap electricity with cheap workers to produce cheap aluminium, cheap zinc, cheap paper, cheap wood chips cheap meat and fruit and we could do that up to a point because our world such as it was consisted largely of other expensive places europe western europe north america and in the second half of that period, Japan. And the only competition we really faced was from other parts of those expensive places. So for a while, what we were doing then was economically sustainable. It may not have been environmentally sustainable, but it was seen to be economically sustainable. But as the world became the world, that is to say, it incorporated not only the so-called industrialized countries, but the emerging and post-communist world, the rest of Asia, Latin America, more recently, even Africa and the Middle East, that model of pretending that you could be economically as well as environmentally sustainable by producing undifferentiated commodities on the cheap just sort of broke down. You know, we cannot, in our small scale, on the edge of the known world, compete with vastly greater numbers of significantly cheaper people whose governments aren't as concerned about environmental protection or occupational health and safety and who don't need to raise as much revenue in order to fund public services. So the kind of economy that in a place like Tasmania is in my view economically sustainable and sustainable in other ways as well is one which is built on producing goods and services that command premium prices because of things that are distinctive about them, their branding, their promotion, their content, their production, their provenance, and that in turn allows us to overcome the otherwise almost insurmountable barriers of small scale and great distance from major markets. And the thing that gives me encouragement about that, that tells me I'm not talking pie in the sky stuff, is that. We've actually shown we can do these sorts of things. I mean, from the very beginning of agriculture in Tasmania, Tasmania has produced just about the finest quality of wool in the world. You know, we don't have big sheep stations running hundreds of thousands of sheep. What we've long sought to do in Tasmania is to produce the finest wool selling for 10 times the price of the average Australian thing. We've done similar things in a range of horticultural products where we produce things like cherries and turnips and wasabi and exotic types of beef. We do it in wine, where we don't grow cask wine in Tasmania. What we seek to do and what we've done commercially successfully is to produce wine that retails for between $35 and $70, moving away from the agricultural space and some of the opportunities and experiences we offer to tourists. Some of that's based on our unique environment. Some of it is now starting to be based on our unique history, including some of the Indigenous history our water, not only the water itself, which is amongst the purest in the world, but things we grow in the water, what we do with the water to generate renewable energy and to provide support for wind and solar in a way that is otherwise hard to do. And then finally, I would say that again, this has emerged over the last decade, what Tasmania can offer the rest of the world in terms of artistic and cultural experiences is also a fabulous economic opportunity But it's also something I think that gives ordinary Tasmanians pride in themselves and their capabilities too. The amount of pride that people have in what David Walsh has done at Mona but the way in which Mona has changed the cultural landscape here through the festivals that they've sponsored, the encouragement that has in turn given to an extraordinary range of community festivals, whether it's the Wooden Boat Festival or the Junction Arts Festival or Unconformity over in Queenstown or the Bay of Fires prize that's now on the East Coast, or as I would like to say, 10 days on the island that covers the whole island. This is an area that creates employment, that is part of what we offer to visitors from the rest of the world. And it's part of something that I think is increasingly giving pride to a broader proportion of Tasmania's community. It's part of what we say to the rest of the world, who we are.
0: You're listening to WTF 2050. What's Tasmania's future? It
2: feels like we get... A tiny bit into the conversation about anything and it becomes it's in that very short-term cycle and so we're not talking about a long-term vision.
1: Yeah I mean this was the concluding paragraph of my Tasmania report was urging Tasmanian politicians not to play the rule things out game which they're not the only participants in this game the media play it as well that someone says something and then The other side of politics is immediately challenged to rule out the possibility of ever implementing a suggestion like this, and they're very eager to do that because our politicians have become very wary of taking a complicated and challenging argument to the people and seeking to persuade them to change their mind. Rather, politicians like to say that they are listening to the people by echoing back to the people what their political research tells them the people are thinking.
2: And want to hear.
1: And and want to hear, yes. So, you know, I'm not an advocate of autocracy or dictatorship. I don't think government should ride roughshod over the opinions of the people. But I think government should seek to have conversations with their people with a view in certain circumstances to changing their mind about particular things. And almost all reforms have had that as a key element. If governments only ever did what opinion polls tell them people want, we would still be having public executions. We would probably still have various aspects of private behaviour carrying criminal sanctions. We would still have very high tariffs, and we would probably still have a white Australia policy. If governments had not been willing to challenge entrenched public opinion and had been unwilling to lead. How do you
2: best support long-term thinking, do you think?
1: Well, I suppose I can't speak for others, but what I try and do is put facts on the table in ways that I'd like to think make it easier for people to understand and come to terms with them. And that's why, for example, I've, in the last three Tasmania reports, spent a lot of time putting what I think are important and relevant facts about Tasmania's economic performance and the reasons for it and about Tasmania's education system and the reason for its suboptimal outcomes out there for people to think about. The second thing that I'm willing to do is to push out the boundaries of what's politically possible by advocating or suggesting things that would normally be ruled out, including, as we were just discussing, the possible sale of some government businesses, and doing so knowing that it's unlikely that politicians will pick them up and say, yeah, we really ought to do that, but perhaps giving them space to say, we're not going to go as far as Saul Lake has suggested, but we're going to go further than we might have otherwise done. And I'm not sure that that strategy is actually working, but I can't think of any other way in which I can usefully help to expand the range of possibilities that might be contemplated. I would like to think that by 2050, Tasmania would no longer be the poorest state in the country. I've said before, it's unrealistic to expect that we could be the richest state in the country. It's unrealistic even to expect that we could be as rich in narrow economic terms as the rest of the country put together on average. But in my view, we don't have to be the poorest state in the country as we are now by a large margin without too much effort, we could put ourselves in a position where, on narrow economic terms, we're no worse off than South Australia relative to the rest of the country. And we could even be somewhere between where South Australia and Queensland are relative to the rest of the country if we get the economics right. And while getting the economics right isn't the be-all and end-all of everything, if we do get the economics right, then we can be in a much better position to address some of the other issues that have long been prevalent in Tasmania. My vision for education would be that Tasmanians by 2050 are no longer the least educated people in the country. And sad to say that that's where we are at the moment, that the proportion of Tasmanians who have a post-secondary qualification is lower than in any other state and indeed lower than in the regional parts of other states rather than simply lower than in the big capital cities on the mainland. Conversely, we have by a wide margin a bigger proportion of our population who've never achieved anything beyond year 10 than any other state, or than the regional parts of other states, which some people would see as a more important comparison. That isn't because we're not spending enough on education. In some ways, I sometimes wish that we weren't spending enough on education because then it would be easy to say what the solution is, just spend more, Uh, and that would be popular with many people as well. But I can't say that because we are spending more per student than any other state except the Northern Territory and by a small margin, Western Australia. We're spending a larger proportion of our lower incomes on education than any other state or territory, and we're getting worse results. And I think that's a tragedy. I think it's a tragedy for In particular, the Tasmanians who haven't had the chance to go on to year 12. And I'm not saying that because I think everyone ought to or can go on to university. But for those who are pursuing some kind of vocational or trade education, year 12 is a better jumping off point for that than year 10. And I think it's a tragedy that so many Tasmanians have missed out on the opportunities that a full secondary education provides and continue to miss out on it notwithstanding that some of the changes that have been made in recent years have removed some of the barriers that students in rural and regional areas in particular have historically faced in terms of completing secondary school all the way up to year 12. There seems to be a very strong resistance to any change.
2: But I've been told by Tasmanians that that's partly because there's a narrative of Don't send them to university because then they
1: leave. Certainly among older Tasmanians, I think that view is still entrenched. And of course, there is an awful lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth in the state uh, about young people leaving and the impact that that has. Uh, My observation is that this is part of island culture, you know, that not just in Tasmania, but in New Zealand, in Ireland, in the outer Hebrides, in Corsica, in Sicily, Sardinia, in the Greek islands, in Newfoundland, Prince Edward Island. It is part of growing up on an island that you wonder what it is on the other side of the stretch of water that makes you an island uh, that could be a bigger challenge or throw up more opportunities. And my sense is that there are only three islands in the world that are population magnets for the rest of their countries, and that's Manhattan, Honshu and Java which just happened to be the metropolitan centres of their countries. I mean, nowadays, or perhaps in the last 20 years, Britain has been a population magnet, or at least London has been a population magnet. But for most of the previous 200 years, Britain was a net exporter of its more adventurous and younger people as well. Otherwise, you and me wouldn't be here in Australia, because our ancestors were among those people who left England to, uh, to come here. I think instead of bemoaning the fact that our best and brightest young people, like bright young people in other islands, want to see what they're capable of in bigger markets, we ought to be devoting more effort to keeping those young people who leave in touch with Tasmania while they're away giving them reasons to think about coming back to Tasmania at certain points in their lives, for example, when they start families of their own, or when they're thinking about retiring or changing the pace of their life. And third, we ought to be thinking more creatively about getting other people in their 20s, 30s and 40s to come to Tasmania at least for a while, in the hope that if even just 5% of them either fall in love with Tasmania or with a Tasmanian and decide to stay, that that's a net gain. And for the 95% or whatever it is who decide to go back where they come from after spending three or five years here, then at least they're people who understand Tasmania and could potentially be ambassadors and uh, advocates for us. So we can't be like Western Australia in the same way our population size makes it most unlikely we'll ever be a financial centre or a professional services centre in the way that Sydney and Melbourne are. We have to find our own way. We need to understand, as I said before, that we can't aspire to be the richest state in the country. We can't aspire to be as rich as the rest of the country put together on average, but I think we can and should aspire to be something better than the poorest state in the country.
0: That was the very lovely soul S. Slake at his home, which he very generously opened for us and took us through what Tasmania's economy used to be, what it will be in the future, and how that's going to facilitate some of our great ideas coming up in future
2: episodes. It hadn't occurred to me that so much of Tassie's wealth from colonization had been about the production of food that was grown and relatively cheaply until European community came in and that changed. And now we're a state that's very much known for our high quality, low volume food.
0: Well, it's a nice lead into next week's episode, Anna, because we've got two of the smartest women in Tasmania talking about a very smart but very simple idea that when I heard it I thought, My God, why aren't we doing
2: that already? So here is a little taste of what you'll hear next week. This is Joe Cook and Jess Robbins. And so we were getting to know the council crew and having drinks, and and one of them said to me, "You do realise this will be the end of your career, <laughs> because um, because he thought my ideas were so out there, and the way we were approaching this event was just not gonna not gonna fly." WTF 2050 is hosted by me, Anna Bateman. And me, Leanne Minshull. We are supported by the Australia Institute and all of our excellent music and post-production is by Fletcher Babb. Extra recording, Michael Shelley at the Green Room in Hobart. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow the conversation on Facebook, Twitter and at our website, wtf2050.org.au.